Amen. You know, in the Latino Pentecostal church, I became a Christian, and we would sing that song until everybody got touched by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> until everybody was laid out, the song was not done. And so uh, you got one-eighth of what I would typically experience uh, in my church. Amen. Ooh, that felt good. That felt good. Uh, Friends, welcome. If you're watching online from newlife.nyc, on Facebook, on YouTube, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor at New Life Fellowship here in Queens, New York City. And if this is your first time here, I'm just thrilled that you are worshiping with us. At the end of our service, I'll be downstairs in the lobby area. Some of our pastors will be downstairs as well. And we'd love to connect with you before you head out. So make sure you just say hello before you uh, step out of the building. Also want to note that next Saturday we have a parenting conference. I'm so excited about this. It's entitled Hold On to Your Kids. What does it mean to emotionally attach with our children? What does it mean to connect with our children beyond behavior modification? It's very easy to have a relationship with our kids in such a way where we just want them to do what we want them to do, and there's a place for that. Amen. Pick up the toys. I mean, just pick up the toys, you know, but, but beyond just getting them to do what we want them to do, what does it mean to emotionally connect with our kids? And uh, we're going to have three sessions. Rosie and I are going to lead the first session, and we've been working on a talk for a couple of weeks, and I believe it's going to be really important for the formation uh, of our parents and our families here at New Life, so you can Register online. I'd love to see as many uh, of you there. And if parenting has been hard for you, uh, this is for you. And let me just say, uh, parenting is hard for everyone, all right? And so there's no one who escapes the, the challenges of the parenting journey. So feel free to join us for that. Also want to say that tomorrow is Indigenous uh, Peoples Day. Uh, many people in our nation will be celebrating this holiday. And to work for racial reconciliation, to be a community that's oriented around reconciliation, requires us to be honest about the past and the ways that the past continues to impact uh, the present and our future. And it's also a day to highlight uh, the gifts of First Nations people who have stewarded uh, this land. Uh, there were two tribes in New York State that are the, the Rockaway and the Matinecock tribes. Uh, they were the people who lived here and fished here and hunted here and had children here and built families here. And these were the tribes that were uh, removed uh, in the city of New York and from the state of New York so that it could be established. And so we offer our thanks to the Rockaway and the Matinecock tribes. And, and we pray that we would steward the land well, faithfully, and remember those who have gone before us and those who have suffered uh, in the process as well. And we want to pray for those who, who find, uh, identify with these uh, tribes as well. And so tomorrow, when you, if you hear about Rockaway Beach, just know that that name didn't come out of nowhere, that that name is out of, a part of a particular people that's been connected to uh, this land. Now, uh, we're going to uh, continue our series through the book of Revelation. We are focusing on the fourth Church, And if you're new to our congregation, uh, this is a series that we're on focusing on the seven letters that Jesus has to uh, give to the seven churches in the book of, of Revelation. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that's actually uh, quite heavy. 
uh, and I believe the Lord wants to speak to all of us uh, in a particular way. We frame the series words of Jesus' uh, words of confrontation and consolation. And the reason we've used those two words is because it's very easy for us to emphasize one word over the other. It's easy for us to have a relationship with God that's marked by consolation, but we don't know the Jesus of confrontation. Or we only could relate to God as the God who confronts us, but not the God who consoles us. And what we want to do is hold on to the dynamic tension that Jesus is one who confronts us and consoles us, and we must hold that intention with each other. And so we're looking at Jesus' words to the church at Thyatira, and, and Thyatira was actually the least impressive of the seven churches, they did not have the kind of cultural power and cultural influence like other churches have in the cities that they were in, and yet this is the longest of the letters that Jesus has to speak. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, those who the world tends to overlook, I have lots to say, and I want to address them. And so Jesus has these words, uh, Revelation chapter 2, you can follow in your Bible or follow on the screen, hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Aren't you happy you came to church today? Uh, Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we pray and get into it, let me just say a few things about this text here. Number one, these, these words are from Jesus. Uh, no, this is not the Old Testament. Some of you are wondering, is this the Old Testament? No, these are words from Jesus. The same Jesus that we meet in the Gospels. And it's really important not to create a different Jesus in Revelation than we do in the Gospels. This is the same Jesus. Why is that important? Because it's very easy to cherry pick what I like from Jesus and what I don't like from Jesus and to create a Jesus in my own image, to create a Jesus to my liking. But we can't do that here because this is the same Jesus. Secondly, I want to say that if you came to church today and if you're not a follower of Jesus... This text really is not aimed at you. I also want to say 
That if you're here and you're struggling with sin, if you find yourself stuck in an area of your life, but you're bringing it before God, you're bringing it before others, you're wrestling with it, you're repenting, you're, you're, you're looking for support, this text is not really aimed at you either. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you're not resisting sin and you're doing whatever you want with zero desire to change and you have decided that Holy Scripture is just suggestions from God that you can easily receive or dismiss, then that's for us. And all of us at various points of our journey will find ourselves at this point. And so we want to have soft and tender hearts. As Jesus speaks to the church at Thyatira, he's speaking to us as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love, which is better than life. And thank you for the ways you speak life and truth to us. Lead us in the way of your Holy Spirit this day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. There's a five-word phrase that I've heard over the years that speaks to uh, the kind of protection of integrity and identity. A five-word phrase that has shown up in families, a five-word phrase that has shown up in businesses, a five-word phrase that I've heard in different churches, the five-word phrase that's really about protecting integrity is, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. I remember a basketball coach of mine saying that whenever a value on the team was violated, he would look around us and say, we don't do that here. That, that integrity was needed to protect our identity as a team. I would hear it in different businesses. I remember meeting with a successful business owner, and whenever an organizational value was violated, he would train the supervisors to gently remind the staff, we don't do that here. This is how we do things. When Jesus speaks these seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, he's essentially repeating over and over and over again, we don't do that here. He repeatedly reminds the church of their identity and that their integrity is to protect that identity who God has called them to be. Jesus reminds them that he is the one who has died for them, that he was the one who's raised for them, that he has given the Holy Spirit, that he has moved the church out of darkness into his glorious light. We don't do that here. And yet what we find in the Bible is this surprising and some ways disturbing truth that Christians are just as prone to sin as non-Christians. Over and over in the book of Revelation, we find that Christians are just as prone to be seduced as non-Christians. That Christians are just as prone to go down the road of temptation as non-Christians. As a matter of fact, Eugene Peterson, the great pastor and author, captures it in a really important way. He says that Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. They are rather to be places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. 
I've had to be reminded of this on a regular basis whenever folks come to New Life Fellowship Church. Lots of folks have read Pastor Pete's books, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, Emotionally Healthy Church, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Emotionally Healthy Chicken Soup, all the stuff here. And people come to our church thinking this is the emotionally healthy church, which basically means that everyone has got their act together who comes to New Life Fellowship Church. And I have to remind everyone who comes here, we're all on the journey, and we still got a lot of work to do. The church are uh, not, as a rule, models of good behavior, but we are to be places where human misbehavior is brought onto the open, faced, and dealt with. And that's what we find in our text today. What we find in our text today is this truth that Jesus is passionately committed to protecting the integrity of the church. That's essentially what we see in this text, and that's what we see throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus is passionately committed to protecting the integrity of the church. Now, as we've been in the book of Revelation, I've noted that there are three reasons why the book of Revelation was written or or three types of literature that it is. And at the end of the seventh week, we'll have a quiz. Uh, Three things that I've been saying. The first thing is that, that the book of Revelation is prophetic literature. Number one, it's prophetic literature, which is to say that it shows us what the future holds, but not just what the future holds. It reminds us who holds the future. Amen. That Jesus Christ holds the future, that he is beginning and end, that he is alpha and omega, that he is Lord and king and ruler. It is prophetic literature. Number two, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And apocalypse basically means to reveal that which was hidden before. And so when we read the book of Revelation, we are reminded that, that what, what we see with our eyes is not the full picture. And Revelation reminds us that there is evil happening behind the scenes, that there are powers and principalities and forces in our world that we cannot see with our eyes that the book of Revelation reminds us of. Moreover, we are reminded that even though we cannot see the presence of God in ways that we want to, Revelation reminds us that God is active behind the scenes. God is active in your life right now. God has authority, has power. Jesus right now, even in his hiddenness, is present in your life. And what we all need from time to time is an apocalypse, a revelation, an unveiling of God's presence in our lives. Number three, prophetic, apocalyptic. This is about resistance, resistance. The book of Revelation is resistance literature. That as we read it, we are to be reminded that we are to resist sin. Resist the powers and principalities. Resist the flesh. Resist the devil and his schemes and his tricks. We are to resist the ways of the evil one and walk in the way of the holy one. Prophetic, apocalyptic, resistance. And so Jesus, as he has been doing in the first three chapters that we looked at, the first three churches, introduces himself, but this time in a new way. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the only time in Revelation where Jesus identifies as the Son of God, which speaks to his divinity. That to be the son of God is not to be less than the father. 
to be the son of God is to declare that he has been uniquely sent by the father. Amen. Jesus is not some little God. Jesus is not some part of a hierarchy where the father's up here and the son is down here. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is God. He's not less than God, but he was uniquely sent by the father. I am the son of God, he says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 19, he begins with words of commendation, words of encouragement for the church. He says, I know your deeds, your love, faith, service, perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Right here, Jesus highlights six words that make Thyatira, this church, a wonderful place. Deeds, love, faith, service, perseverance, growth. This is a church that anyone wants to attend. This is a church that wants to, I want to be a part of this small group at this church. This church had a great CDC. They didn't just talk about good deeds. They did good deeds. When you came into the building for worship, you were received with all kinds of love. This is a church that had deep faith, the kind of faith that moved mountains. Amen. They, I mean, they, they just had that kind of faith. This was a church where everyone served, that, that when they found out someone was in the hospital, when they found out that someone needed to go to the hospital, they, 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 they gave them their parking spot, okay? I mean, this is a good church. This is a church that persevered in the face of a society that worshiped many other gods. Look at this. This is a church that was growing deeds, love, faith, perseverance, growth. It's a model church. Or so it seems. And one of the themes that we are reminded of every week as we've been going through the book of Revelation is this. What we see with our eyes is not always the full picture. It's very easy to, for us to come to conclusions about people, come to conclusions about families, come to conclusions about organizations, churches, simply by what we see from a distance. And then you get a little close and you realize that perception is not always reality. But Jesus sees it all. His eyes are like blazing fire. Now, one of the reasons we are to confess our sin on a regular basis, some of you, when Andres said, uh, think about your past week, you go, well, I had a pretty good week. I, I, I was actually a pretty good week. One of the reasons we are to confess our sin, whether we can think about stuff that we've done or things that we have not done, is because we don't see ourselves in the full way that Jesus does. That we all have blind spots. No matter, no matter how good our week was, we all have some area in our lives where we fall short. And so it is just good that we have the habit of confession of sin because we don't have eyes that are like blazing fire. Jesus has eyes that are like blazing fire, and he sees it all. He sees what's happening beneath the surface at the church at Thyatira. This church probably had the best Instagram page. I mean, smiling faces on the website, pictures of people serving each other, powerful worship, and yet there was something that was very wrong. 
And this is a good word for our church. I want to be a pastor that acknowledges this truth. That if Jesus were to show up right this moment at New Life Fellowship Church in the flesh, besides you fainting and all that stuff there, when you actually get to and you listen to, to Jesus, what, the, what would Jesus say to our church? Now, I'm sure that Jesus would offer words of commendation to our church. I believe we have a beautiful church. I believe we have people in our church, you brothers and sisters, uh, uh, pursuing Jesus hard. I believe we have a church that's serving, the poor, doing wonderful things. I believe Jesus would come here and give words of commendation to us. And then we say, well, thank you, Jesus. Uh, yeah, thanks for stopping by. Uh, see you again. He goes, wait, wait, before, you, before I leave, what would he say to us? What are the words of confrontation that Jesus would speak to our church? And not just our church, what about your life? What are the words of commendation that Jesus would speak to your life? What are the words of confrontation that Jesus would speak to your life? Jesus speaks words of commendation, and then he points out there's certain, there's certain things in this church that's very wrong. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Evidently, there was a woman in this church who called herself a prophet and had great influence over the church. This is the first influencer, okay, the first influencer. She's influencing the church. Blue check and all on her uh, social media page. Her, her name is Jezebel. Jesus calls her Jezebel. And to be clear, her, her name is not Jezebel. It's a symbolic name because Jesus is making a point that this woman lived in such a way that she resembled this woman named Jezebel in the Old Testament. But it wasn't her name. It's like Jesus saying, you know, you tolerate that man Voldemort. Okay, no one's calling their child Voldemort. I hope you're not calling your child Voldemort. <laughs> you tolerate that woman Maleficent, okay? And not the Angel uh, Angelina Jolie uh, version of it, the real one, I mean, the, the, the previous one, whatever it is. You know, no, Jesus is using a symbolic name here. Because the woman in this text carries herself like Jezebel. Now, it's really important for me to say that the problem in this church is not that a woman is exercising authority. I read recently, I read saw a pastor say that the problem here is that a woman is in leadership. The issue here is not that a woman is in leadership. The issue is not that a woman calls herself a prophet. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God anoints women as prophets. And it's a sad reality in the church that strong, anointed, decisive women are often seen as a threat, a threat to men. And what this often reveals when it shows its head like this is that in many cases, that strong, uh, anointed, decisive women are a threat to insecure men. But that's not what's going on here. The issue is that a specific woman is carrying herself like Jezebel. The question is, who's Jezebel? 
and what did she do? Well, Jezebel was the wife of a, a king in Israel named Ahab, the seventh king of Israel. And she led him and other people around her astray to worship pagan gods. Under her leadership, she had so much influence. She created a priesthood of prophets, 400 people that would worship Baal, the god of that day. Under her leadership, she was manipulative. She was ruthless. She was wicked. There was something about her that struck fear into people. And Jesus says, there's someone like that at this church. This woman prophet in the book of Revelation in Thyatira is influencing the church to go down a road of ethics that's opposed to life in the kingdom of God. And the way that it happened is actually a bit complicated, so stick with me for a second. In Thyatira, it was an area that had, had many guilds around many different trades. Think of it as Thyatira had strong labor unions, strong labor unions. That in order to get a job at Thyatira, you had to belong to a particular union. But what was challenging about belonging to the particular union was this. Unions in that town was not just connected to employment. To get a job in Thyatira meant more than just going to work at 9 a.m. and going to work at, uh, going home at 5 p.m. In order to get a job at this guild, a job in this labor union, it meant that you had to also participate in the larger culture of the world. And so you had to worship the gods of the culture. You had to drink their drink. You had to eat their food. And their festivals would often lead to all kinds of sexual immorality. You know what this was like? This was like Christmas parties at some organizations. I remember, yeah, I'm going to preach this. I remember uh, uh, I was 19, I wasn't a Christian. I was 19, 18 years old at, a, at a, a, a company in Manhattan, and we had a Christmas party. And it started off with a karaoke, and I was doing my karaoke thing. And, and, then, and then drinks started being had and consumed. And I'm not a Christian at this point, and started seeing married people doing business with other married people in the open. And I'm not a Christian. I'm thinking something's wrong here. This is something. God is not pleased. God is not pleased. And it was like nothing was wrong whatsoever. And there was multiple Christmas parties where I went to where I would see these things. Thyatira was like one long Christmas party in which people were doing whatever they wanted to do. And so what scholars were saying is this. This woman Jezebel, who's in this church in the book of Revelation, is encouraging and normalizing and seducing the church to live like the surrounding culture. She's saying, listen, we're in the city that never sleeps. We're in a pagan society. You just got to do what you got to do because you live in this culture. And it seems like her teaching was oriented around two particular theologies, two particular theologies. The first was Gnosticism. The second was a bad theology of grace. Gnosticism is this ancient teaching that basically says that all God wants from us is pure spirits, pure spirits, good hearts, pure spirits. And so your body becomes irrelevant. And some folks use Gnosticism as a way of punishing your body 
to free your spirits. Other people saw Gnosticism as your body is irrelevant. You can do whatever you want with your body because God only cares about your soul. God only cares about your spirit. And God knows you live in a difficult city. Do whatever you please. And so she was probably teaching Gnosticism and she was, had a bad theology of grace. A theology of grace that said, do what you please. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. God, don't, don't worry about not getting it right. Oh, that God knows your heart. Do whatever you want. As opposed to grace, receiving grace is to lead to a transformation of life. She was saying, just receive God's grace, but it doesn't have any bearing on the way you live your life. And so she's teaching these things, and Jesus comes on the scene and has some things to say to her and the church around her. Look at the next verse. He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Jesus is somehow revealing himself to Jezebel. Revealing himself, we don't know how, in some ways he said, I'm giving her time to repent. But she is unwilling. And what we find in those words are a few important things. Number one, the patience of God. The patience of God. He's patient with you. Aren't you glad? He's patient with me. He says, I'm giving her time. I've given her time. But she is unwilling. And then we have verse 21. Verse 22. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Last week I said I should call out sick this week. That, that, this is why. This is why. Uh, what we find here is the very difficult teaching of the discipline of God and the wrath of God. Now, the word wrath is a word that when we hear it, it's usually interpreted as this. It is God's uncontrollable violent anger and vengeance against sinners. That's what we think. Wrath, God's uncontrollable, violent anger and vengeance against sinners. And, and I don't think that's the best way to understand what the wrath of God is. What the wrath of God is, is more like God saying this. God saying, if that is what you want, you can have it. If you want that, I'm saying this is not good for you, but if this is what, it is God giving us over to our sins. It is God giving us over to our decisions. It is us saying, I have zero desire to change. Zero desire to align my life to Jesus. And, and, and is there a scarier place to be than God saying, if that's what you want, you can have it. And this is what happens. He says, if you, to read that verse, bed of suffering, children dead, listen to this. Read it in this way. He said, if you give yourself to this, it's going to lead to a bed of suffering. And children dead, that children is not talking about toddlers. He's talking about the followers of Jezebel. That those who follow her in this way are going to lead to a kind of spiritual and sometimes physical death. If that's what you want, you can have it. There's nothing more terrifying than God giving us over to our sins. 
Now, the discipline of God, the, the wrath of God in this way, is a very challenging teaching, and yet we see it all throughout Scripture. In Hebrews chapter uh, 12, here are these words. He says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Next verse. He says, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have, had human, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Whew, this is a lot. The discipline of God. Jesus is passionate about protecting the integrity of the church, protecting the integrity of our lives. And there's many implications for us. As I think about implications, what are the lessons that we learn from this text? What are the lessons that we are to open ourselves up to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, to the way of Jesus? I want to think of four lessons, and I want to invite you to consider them in the form of four questions. Four lessons in the form of four questions. The first question is, what are we tolerating in our own lives that is not pleasing to God? Now, listen. It's very easy to name what we don't want to tolerate in other people's lives. Some of us, are, you're going to hear this and you go, that's it. No more Netflix in this house. We're not going to do this. You're not hanging out with that person. That relationship is coming to an end and you're ready to just tear down the whole thing. But before we start talking about what we're not going to tolerate in others, let's begin asking ourselves the question. What are we tolerating in our own lives that is not pleasing to God? What have you allowed in your life that's pulling you away from God? Are there relationships that are forming you in a way that is against the way of Jesus? Are there things that you're consuming, watching, inviting into your life? that's pulling you away from the way of Jesus. What are you tolerating in your own life that's not pleasing to God? Number two, how is the surrounding culture shaping your life in ways inconsistent with Jesus? In this portion of Revelation, the church is being shaped by a culture of idolatry. A culture of idolatry. And here's the challenge before us. In the Bible, it was often very clear and evident before the eyes who was committing idolatry and who wasn't. There were shrines, altars, gods that they saw, statues. It was very easy to see, oh, that person's worshiping an idol and that person's not. But in our day, is it more challenging to identify who's worshiping idols? 
And some of us are thinking right now, I don't have a shrine in my house. I don't have an altar in my house. I don't have any statues in my house. This message is for somebody else. And yet, idolatry infects the, every human heart. One way I've heard of it is this way. Uh, Tim Keller said that what is an idol? It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. What is an idol? It's anything that you turn to and say, save me, rescue me. An idol is something, is usually a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is when we say, unless I have that, I have nothing. And when we see idolatry in this way, we must be on guard because anything can become an idol. We might not turn to other gods, but we turn things into gods. Money into God. Sex into God. Political power into God. Work into God. Nationalism into God. Across the board. Uh, the Reformed theologian John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making machines, idol-making factories. And so where is the world and the culture shaping us in ways that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus? Number three, where is sexual flippancy occurring in your life? A theologian by the name of Christopher West said that when we think about sexuality, there are often three diets that we live according to, and I want to focus on two of them. There's the starvation diet, and there's the fast food diet. Starvation, fast food. The church is often adopts the starvation diet. The starvation diet is marked by repression and suppression. The starvation diet does not have a good theology of our longings, a good theology of our appetites, a good the theology of our desires. The starvation diet basically says this, if it feels good, it's probably bad. And the church typically lives according to the starvation diet. And when you live according to the starvation diet, what happens? People start acting out. Secrets all over the place. A, a double life. Because you can't give yourself to a theology of desire, appetite, in a way that's, that's holy, in a way that's good. But increasingly in our society, the church is also tempted to live according to the fast food diet. And if the starvation diet is marked by repression, the fast food diet is marked by reduction. Reducing our longings, reducing our appetite, re reducing the cravings of our body as the ultimate thing. That the ultimate thing for my life is whatever my body wants. That the ultimate goal of my life is to live a life that feels good. And, and, and what we are invited into is to a life of discernment. Now, our society, a world that is not under the rule of Jesus, tends to have one moral imperative as it relates to sexuality. And it is an imperative that's basically marked by consent. Consent in our society is the only moral imperative. What does that mean? As long as there are two consenting adults who want to have relationship with each other, that's all we need to discern whether this relationship should be pursued. Two consenting adults. And that's far too superficial of a way to think through what we do with our body. 
That to follow Jesus and the way of his kingdom is a life that calls us to discernment. That a life of sexual wholeness, it's not moral perfection. It's not getting it right all the time. It's not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. It's about discernment. It, it, it's a recognizing who I discern, who I give my body to. And we live in a culture where sex and sexuality is just so flippant. But according to scripture, it's a fire. It's a powerful force that bonds people together. Such a powerful force that requires a particular context to see it truly flourish. And that context is covenant. That context is marriage. That's, that's where it belongs, which is why when it is done outside of a context of marriage, it's cheapened and we get burned. What is sexual wholeness? It, it's a life that's not given to objectification. That we were created to enjoy communion with God and communion with others and not to see others as a means to an end, as an object for our own gratification. And we live in a society where using becomes the norm. This is, the, this is the essence of a culture that's marked by pornography, for example. That we are formed to create imaginary relationships in our head. Using others for the sake of appetites of our bodies. And in this respect, people are no longer seen as people. They're seen as tools, as an object to fulfill the desires that I have. The fourth question is, where is God calling you? Where is God calling me to live with greater integrity? I trust that the Holy Spirit right now is move, moving throughout this building and moving online right now and touching hearts and pointing out areas. Where is God calling you to live with greater integrity? There's a holiness to this. Could you imagine the church in Thyatira, this is how it would go. Everyone did not have a Bible. And so they would go, all right, everybody, huddle up. Jesus has a word for all of us. And then he starts reading. Could you imagine the, you ever seen the Homer Simpson meme where he's backing up into a bush and he's just like backing up in there. It's just like, that's what everyone's trying to do. There's a holiness here. A silence over the church, much like we're feeling right here, because God is calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, next year, we're going we're gonna to have probably a 12-week series on sexuality, and we're going to go into the nuances and all that stuff, and, and by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit will lead us. But for our purposes today, where is God calling you to live with greater integrity? Now, as we close here, and then we'll sing. What I love about this passage, what I love about the book of Revelation, what I love about our Lord Jesus Christ is his love and patience and grace for us. I love that Jesus does not call perfect people. I love that Jesus does not call people who don't struggle with anything. I love that Jesus calls imperfect people, which is why I love that the Bible is a collection not of sanitized stories of holy people who pray every day and their dishes never get dirty and their kids always behave. That's not what the Bible is. Over and over we find God calling people 
who have broken lives, weak lives, marred by sin, and they are made righteous by a holiness outside themselves. We come to worship today, not in our name, but in the name of Jesus. We come to church today, not in our righteousness, but in his righteousness. We don't survive spiritually based on our work, but on his work. We are here today because of the love and the grace and the compassion of Jesus Christ. But grace of God is to produce in us something that aligns our lives with the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so as we hear this text today, as we hear these words spoken over us today, what is God saying to you? What is God saying I want you to pay attention to that. I want you to give your attention to that. I want you to come back home to me. And as we open ourselves up to that grace, may the Holy Spirit fill us to overflow, that we would live lives that are in alignment with Jesus and the way of his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your patience, your compassion, your mercy, your grace is remarkable. Thank you for the ways that the Holy Spirit reminds us, compels us, convicts us, challenges us. Lord, I believe that some came to church today, some are watching online, because this is exactly the word that they needed to hear. And so may our hearts be tender, open, receptive, discerning. And may we be a church, a community, while recognizing that we are imperfect, inconsistent, may we continually throw ourselves at your feet. Holy Spirit, do a work in us. Lead us back to you. And so we sing this song of worship. We sing this song of repentance. Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We sing these things to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, let's all stand. Let's sing together.
Let's have our prayer team come to my, to my right. I'm reminded time and time again that as much as I want to, I can't put Jesus in a box. And every time I try to create a Jesus in my own image, those categories get shattered. He is the gentle and compassionate one. And he is the one who has eyes that are blazing fire. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are invited to be in relationship with the true Jesus, not the Jesus of our making. I imagine some of you came to church today and 
maybe you've been so set in your ways, unwilling to change, marking things on your account. This is what I'm going to do and there's nothing you can do about it. Some of you may be watching right here in this room here, plans to cheat on your spouse. You're saying there's nothing you can do about it. This is God's pleading to you. This is God saying to you, come back. So many of us have just made up decisions on just how we're going to live our lives. And I'm not talking about people who are not followers of Jesus. These words are so important because they're spoken to the church. And we've said that Jesus is, he's an accessory. I'll add Jesus to my life and, and do as I please. And yet to be a follower of Jesus calls us to surrender our entire lives to him. As your pastor, I'm inviting you to surrender your entire life to Jesus Christ. How you deal with your money, how you deal with your sex, sexuality, how you, how you deal with conflict, how, how do you deal with possessions, all of it under the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that God has given us the Holy Spirit to do this and flow through us. And so I realize sometimes we just need someone to pray for us. We all have weak weeks, weak months, weak years, and we just need someone to pray for us, to strengthen us, which is why we have a prayer team. Whatever needs you have, wherever you find yourself stuck, maybe today you were very hell-bent on doing whatever you want and, and your heart feels softened today. That's the grace of the Holy Spirit working on you right now. And we'd love to pray for you for whatever need you have. If you're watching online, we have a sermon discussion time after this service. And if you want to just talk to one of our pastors or be in conversation for about 30 minutes, there's a link right online that you can click. We'd love for you to connect with us for a little bit. And maybe today you're watching online or you came to church. Maybe you came to church for the first time. What a Sunday you chose to come to church. And, and yet I believe if you're here, you're here because God wanted you here. God has had his eye on you and his hand on you. And God is calling you to himself. And maybe today you're not a follower of Jesus. Can I encourage you? He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants to transform you. He wants to fill you with life and love and peace. He wants to revolutionize your life. And very simply, it's a matter of you saying, Lord, I want to receive this gift of relationship with you. Whether you come forward for prayer, whether you text that phrase, yes to Jesus, to that number, and one of our pastors uh, will follow up with you, 718-424-0122. We'd love to serve you in any way that we can. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven. I hope you walk out of here knowing two things. Number one, that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. And number two, that as your pastor, I love you so deeply. And may you find yourself open to the Holy Spirit 
to live in communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, doing what Christ has called you to do in the strength of the Spirit. May you live with joy, peace, discernment, abundance. And may you offer that life to the world around you. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Grace and peace to you all.